First off, Charles Schwab did that. Yeah, ab absolutely. I, th I think there's a second question, which is what you got to, which is people have an emotional relationship with money, right? And so... Highly emotional relationship with money. It, it, is, it is directly, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's values around value, right? So the, the question is, is it, good, is it a good idea to invest your own money? Right. Like it's not a good idea to be your own lawyer. Why is it a good idea to invest your own money? And, and so there's I, 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 I look at that. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our very stimulating interview with uh, Jonathan Brill. By the way, if you don't know, he's got a great new book out called Rogue Waves. If you go to jonathanbrill.com, you can get it. Former former global futurist of HP, which has to be a cool business card to hand out, by the way. It sure was. <laughs> You're a speaker. You do all these great things. But uh, if anybody missed part one, Jonathan and I have been going down the rabbit hole of, hey, what are, what are waves that are coming and what could be done about them? And I got on my soapbox about how I feel like we've got a problem in, in the you know in the Western democratic countries of the world, including the US, of not taking cyber warfare as seriously as the other people who'd like to run the world, namely China, North Korea, Iran, and, and Russia. And so Jonathan asked a really important question that I want to answer here. He says, you're talking about who pays and who benefits. And you were talking on a global international scale, but I have, I have an idea here for a couple of entrepreneurial opportunities for people listening. And I want you to tell me you think they're good ideas or bad ideas. Okay. Can't wait. So we talked for a minute, just a second about Anti-Fragile, the Nicholas Taleb book. Uh, are you familiar with this one? I Very much. No, okay. I'm a big fan of Nicholas Taleb. So, uh, you know, two, two things about Nicholas Taleb. One yeah. is, you know, you've got to remember he was a financial engineer. He'd spent very little time in the real world. Sure. Two, yeah. my, my God, is he's, he's, he's good at teaching and statistics and risk management. Sure. Well, so this book, Anti-Fragile, if you don't know it, everybody needs to go get it. I think, I mean, I love Black Swan. His, his other books are great, but to me, Anti-Fragile is the one. And he talks about this idea of how in world history the amount of peace we've had since World War II is kind of unprecedented. Like this is an abnormal amount of peace compared to human history. And he says, when you look at so many of our financial systems and our businesses that are built on everything staying peaceful and that, you know, like your financial models work out great as long as nothing gets upset, that, that this is probably not as smart as it could be. And he says, there's three kinds of systems, fragile systems, systems that can kind of take things getting shaken up, and then systems that actually get better by things being shaken up. It's like, you know, when you're trying to smooth out concrete, the more jiggling that can happen, the smoother the concrete gets, right? So here's my anti-fragile business model to help with this. I know a whole bunch of folks that they spent their 20 years, retired from the military in like the elite special operations units, and then 9-11 happens, and the military can't train people fast enough. And the corporate world that's like, you know, trying to drill, deliver water bottles to soldiers in Iraq need people who aren't scared to go to Iraq and deliver water bottles, you know. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, contractors, people with a skill set who are not going to make the company look bad by dying on you, okay, and you get blamed for sending people in the war zone, those guys are in high demand immediately. And to me, here's the anti-fragile business model is start, start cyber 
start cybersecurity, like cyber warfare training schools. There's a whole bunch of video game kids that would think this is cool. Corporate America needs it to, corporate America needs your graduates to counter all of the ransomware attacks and stuff that's happening now. But if you add more than just commercial cybersecurity, you add these extra courses where they get certificates in literally what's the difference between North Korean uh, and China attacks versus the Russians versus the Iranians and, and contrasted with the criminal attacks, similarities and differences. And, and these guys actually have some reasonable usability for a week after the next catastrophe happens, right? Listen, Booz Allen, I, I worked with all these Booz Allen kids, okay? They're like, they spent their time in the military or a state department or something, they quit, and the government, like, you can't get this budget out, but you can hire contractors, so they pay 250 sure. grand a year to Booz Allen to get a $150,000 a year person, right? Yep. Set yourself up a huge roster of your own Booz Allen by putting these kids through school, tracking them in their careers, having deals with them where, hey, if I can get you a quarter million, you know, if I can get, if I can get you a better contract, right. we, but, you give, know, can we stay them, in touch? Right. Give them futures. Yeah. Right. <laughs> help help yeah, them get yeah. placed in corporate America in the meantime and have them all ready to go at the minute you can give them a 50% bump in salary. You know, mm -hmm. so there's my one business model. Okay. We're in it. Tell me the holes in it. Tell me what you like about it. So I, I, I'm, I'm just, I've thought about things like this before. Okay. So it depends what states that you're operating in. Uh, ah. you know, just kind of the employment law is, is, is different in terms of whether you can loop, loop people into contracts like that over the long term. The big question I have is do those skills date? Right. Mm. Like the when I was at MIT, the, the big joke was, you know, computer science is the, the most useless degree because by the time you've completed it, it's, it's irrelevant. Right. Um, well, so what skill what skills date and what skills are long term? And then how do you how do you, you know, maintain that that readiness, you know, kind of like we do with the National Guard in the United States? This is the second business model. We are going to invent a certification where they have to pay us for continuing ed that's actually a tested continuing ed to say that they are up to date to keep their certificate okay. live, which will probably increase their salary if they have a, you know, it's like, think about a CFA. I mean, that a chartered financial analyst uh, designation is so hard to get. You will get more money because that, mm -hmm. that I heard, and I don't know if this is true. I heard that the CFA Institute does 200 million a year. I wouldn't be Is that surprised. crazy for a nonprofit institute? Sure, sure. So it's like inventing a holiday. It's like being a marketing guy. <laughs> Let's invent a holiday so we can sell it. <laughs> invent a certification you can sell. Uh, well, so that that yeah, the Dolby theory of of business. I, I once looked at the the earnings per employee at Dolby, and it's like it's like just nuts. So these guys were the, you know the surround sound people. Yeah, yeah. Like they built the standard. They don't build a darn thing. They just got patents. It's amazing. That's so yes, crazy. absolutely. I think standards businesses are the best businesses. Okay. Then my next one is how can entrepreneurs listening today make money by helping, helping ensure a future that is less likely to have a dictatorship running the world? Okay. Is Hollywood. I think this is the angle. Think about how great some of these TV shows have gotten now, right? Mm -hmm. If we had, if you could get the investors to together to pay for the, the highest level of writing mm -hmm. and get really, really intriguing shows written about, mm -hmm. about the world of cyber warfare. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, it's got the drama and it's got the best actor and it's, sure. it's got this and you could just put it in every family's living room over and over and over. Think about, think about these phenomena like the stranger things of the world that right. just become a phenomenon, right? Sure. 
How, how do you build the propaganda machine? Right. Yeah, yeah. Make a whole bunch of money on the propaganda machine of, hey, can't, can't we have a little more protection in this country from uh, North Koreans reversing our sewage? Well, and, and, you know, just to, to be a provocateur, yeah. you know, I, I, you know I'm, I'm a believer in climate change, you know, but I do find it interesting the, as we move up to the COP26 summit and other things that are happening in the political calendar this year, exactly how much coverage and, and how much TV and, and how many fires and everything are getting covered this year and the, the, the explosiveness of it. It's not an accident. This is like this has all happened for sure. But why wasn't it being covered three years ago? Yeah, and it's because there's a larger political agenda. So you can you can manage these things and you can you can drive the game for sure. Yeah, once once again, this is a real thing. We've got to deal with it. It's real. But I actually think that there's there's a bigger challenge, and I'm just gonna try and go off on a little detour and come back, which is that when you think about a person living in rural Africa. And you take that person, you put them in my house in California, their resource usage goes up about 32 times, according to Jared Diamond. Well, that's really interesting when you start taking billions of people and putting them into the U.S. level middle class. Yeah, you end up with some real resource constraint issues long before you deal with climate change issues that could end up in those kinds of geopolitical tensions we were talking about. That's that's a real concern to you know, me. And 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 it's gonna happen long before climate change. And so we've got to deal with this. Yeah. We've got we've got to figure out, you know, how to increase resilience and how to grow the global pie while we do so. And I think that that's actually the 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 deeper thing that we've got to look at is like how do we tell stories about what that world looks like, how to build it, because that's the, actually the propaganda machine that we need to build. Yeah, okay. that, that that solves for a lot of the, cl- the the cyber issues. That solves for a lot of the climate issues, and, yeah. and we don't have a good story. We don't have a good story about the future right now. So my my next subject, we 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 leave off the cyber warfare Armageddon talk. Um, <laughs> my next one is you know our. Our investment firm, Greystoke Investments, we, we sell this like passive investment real estate fund where people get these quarterly checks, right? And for us, I, I feel like it doesn't take a crystal ball to see that my, you know, my and your generation is not quite like our parents and grandparents where like they had to go to a stockbroker to look up the stock quote. Like our grandparents had to look up a stock quote in a book. What was mm-hmm. what was the most recent stock quote? In it's like a catalog, it's like old Sears right. catalog is what they mm-hmm. look like, right? Sure. And and then that got passed down to our parents a little bit of like just this mentality of like, oh, you go to the guy that handles the investments, and and it doesn't help that like the investment world is like massively overwhelming with the volume of things you could invest in. Mm-hmm. And number two, Warren Buffett says, you know, it's full of the the high priests of finance who use complicated words to try to make you dumb, feel dumb so that you'll pay all their expensive fees. Sure. But it just hasn't been as effective, you know, where our generation expects to be able to Google things and get the answer instead of Mm -hmm. just go to the wise sage who has all wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you look at, you know, you look at things like Robinhood, you look at equity crowdfunding and regulation Mm -hmm. crowdfunding. And, you know, when, when Kickstarter, (laughs) when Kickstarter changed, now you've got Quickstarter, Kickstarter for stock, Right. Right. Or right. Indiegogo for shares. Right. right. Um, to me, it feels like we don't need a crystal ball to say, OK, finance, you know, there's about currently there's about 80 trillion dollars in in institutional assets. And the mm-hmm. guess is somewhere between 100 to 120 trillion dollars in personal assets. Right. Mm-hmm. 
those institutional assets are still going to be go to a meeting in New York in a tie and sit with the Yale pension or the, sure. you know, whoever's Yale endowment or somebody's pension. But but that individual money, which is actually the bigger pie, it doesn't seem to need a crystal ball to say, like, this is not just going to be, like, held by the gatekeepers anymore. And mm-hmm. people who can get good at, good at, like, retail marketing might become the new kings of finance. It, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about this subject? Well, for, first off, Charles Schwab did that. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I, th- I think there's a second question, which is what you got to, which is people have an emotional relationship with money, right? And so... Highly emotional relationship with money. It is, it is directly, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's values around value, right? So the, the question is, is it, good, is it a good idea to invest your own money? Right. Like it's not a good idea to be your own lawyer. Why is it a good idea to invest your own money? And and so there's I, 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 I look at that question. And then the second thing is, you know, as you know, if TSR continues to, to shorten its time horizon as it has, you know, and, and if we continue to pump more money into, you know, in, in, into the economy, to what extent is the uh, stock market a good long-term business or long-term indicator of, of, of health or, or, or even, you know, can, can you even track the value of these investments? I mean, what's the PE of Amazon right now? And, and what does that indicate for its long-term growth? Like, can the United States government allow that? Like, I, it, like it's an economy size PE. So, <laughs> you know, I think these are real questions that, that we need to ask, you know, and, and I don't think that, I don't think that individuals necessarily have those skills unless they want to do it full time. Yeah. So I agree on trading. I actually think Robin Hood was one of the worst things to happen to our generation because it's like legalized gam disguised as investing. You know, like if if you believe the definition of investing, like Warren Buffett and his mentor Ben Graham, where it's got safety of principle and an adequate return, right? That, where that's not that's not the stock market anymore. Well it could be, right? If you if you like Warren Buffett buy Coca-Cola and hold it for years and let the shares compound and your your return on investment is based on the compounding of cash flows but mm-hmm. but trading you know like getting in and out when there has mm-hmm. been no recycling of the cash flow like nobody retained any earnings and made more money with it you're just saying i think you're essentially saying my feeling is that everyone else's feelings about tesla shares next week are going to be more positive so I'm going to, it's like, it's like poker, right? Where you're playing, yep. you're paying the partner, right? You're like, my guess on their emotions is I should own Bitcoin. You know, that's, people make money doing that, but that's not what Warren Buffett would consider investing, right? Sure. But he's investing at a different scale, first of all. Second, he moves the market when he makes investments. So it's a, it's a different kind of investing than, than a retail investor. So so I'd say that first. The second is, you know, my friends who have made ungodly amounts of money they're all the they're all the gamblers that you're talking about right they don't actually look at the investment they look at the the they look at you know can can they get out before the game of uh, musical chairs stops you know and these guys yeah, are mainly listen, no, these no. guys may, these guys are mainly seed series a you know that they, they ran band of angels types of deals so it's you know that's the mentality so and that they're is good actually at it. they're good at but it that's, like Well, that's a fascinating subject because to me, that's different than being a trader, right? Okay. And, you know, like Warren Buffett 
contradicts himself on this one, which you can tell it's like all I do on this book is all I do on the show is talk about Warren Buffett and special ops. Okay, nice. <laughs> um, two, two of my favorite subjects, by the way. Okay, so he contradicts himself potentially with some of those folks because he says, you know, he doesn't. He says, I, I never take a swing at a pitch that the pitcher hasn't thrown yet. What he means by that is I don't invest in companies before there's a cash flow stream because I don't mm-hmm. know if I'm buying it at a good price or not. Mm-hmm. Right. But then he says, essentially, risk comes from not knowing what you're doing. And if you can do something within your circle of competence, that that by definition is a good idea. And you look at, you know, I took this class at Harvard that basically said, look at all the money Sequoia and KKR and everybody makes on venture capital and private equity. Mm-hmm. As an industry, the rest of you lose all of those profits plus right. 2%. Okay. Right. So as an asset class, quit being so proud of yourselves that you made it out of investment banking into private equity. As a whole, as an industry, you are a net loss to this country. And a Sequoia who, who can do a Google and a Facebook and these things repeatedly over time, that treasure sure. would, would indicate it is in their circle of competence to, to pick enough of the right kind of seeds to produce returns reliably. Sure. Anyways, any thoughts about any I mean, of that? Yeah, I, I, I don't want to name names, but... I, I, I'm talking very specifically about the, those friends, right? Early investor in Facebook, you know, Dollar Shave Club, one of the rideshare companies. Yeah, you know, the guy's done 20 investments. You know, five of them are unicorns. That's not an accident. Like, there's no statistical world in which that's an accident at a seed stage. And so, um, you know, my my point is, yeah, there there are people who have that competence. It's a different game, and and you know. Yes, they, they, they may lose money as a class, you know, but the winners win disproportionately. And so it's it's a different kind of bet and it's a different piece of your portfolio. Going back to Nassim Taleb, right? Like you take a look at kind of how he looks at barbell strategy. You know, it's exactly that, right? You 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 weight yourself so that if something goes bad, you know, and the the, the group that that kind of follows his strategy, I forget what they're called, you know, the first quarter of, of twenty twenty, I think they did five thousand percent. Right. <laughs> like, you know, you can do this, but it's a piece of a portfolio. It's not the whole portfolio. And and that's that's kind of how I think about that. Interesting. Well, listen, we talked about all sorts of things that I'm sure you weren't expecting to talk about today. Oh, that's but, super uh, fun. Yeah, I wasn't certainly wasn't planning on going special ops and and and, and geopolitics. And <laughs> this is way more fun than most of these things. Well, do this. Give us give us the let's do the sales pitch on the book here. We got, we got a couple <laughs> minutes left. Let's go back. Give us give us make us hungry for the book. Yeah. So we were talking about anti-fragile and we were talking about Nassim Taleb. We were talking about black swans. Deep believer in all of those things. The reality is most of the world, most of the things that happen in, 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 in the world, they're not incalculable risks. They're calculable risks. They're, they're not black swans. They're what I call rogue waves, right? They're, they're, they're these unmanageable events, disruptions that are the result of individually manageable waves of change that collide in a certain place at a certain time. That means that you can start to think about what would happen if that happened and start to prepare for it. In a lot of ways, the book is is very much like anti-fragile, except it's from the perspective of a practitioner who's actually got to build businesses and advise businesses and, and, and get out of the ivory tower of finance and into the real world. And it's about the day-to-day blocking and tackling. How do you create anti-fragile businesses? How do you create resilient growth for your organization? And how do you do that on a step-by-step basis? So can you, can you quickly give us a few more of these, the, the 10 trends that you cover? 
Yeah. The so, yeah, we, we, we talk we talk about social, economic and technological trends. And sorry, that was me. That's all good. And I'm, I'm, we talk about social, economic and technological trends, and I'm just pulling up the list so that we got them all. Uh, so we talk about changing demographics and kind of the fact that in many, if not all of the G20 countries, the 20 largest economies, populations are getting older. And what does that mean for the workforce? And what does that mean for consumption? We talk about the data economy and kind of what, what does it mean that we're able to move things, the, the economy more f- quickly, more fluidly, which is a good thing, but it's also potentially in some cases a deflationary issue. And in many cases, you know, you see situations like Uber uh, or Airbnb where it's basically the same business model. But in the case of Airbnb, because they take a, a fully utilized asset, Uber takes cars where you can produce more and put more people on the road. You know, Uber is a net benefit to the economy where Airbnb typically transfers value and doesn't necessarily create new value in local economies. We talk about labor and automation. We talk about the rise of Asia. We talked about earlier I think maybe in the last episode, modern monetary theory and cheap money and how how long can we keep printing it? We talk about that. We talk about technology, right? What happens is innovation continues to accelerate. What does that mean for competitiveness? We talk about emerging technology, convergence and remixing, the fact that we're we're having less new general purpose technologies that are invented, like the combust the internal combustion engine, and and more kind of reclicking things like at Lake Legos and how how what does that mean and and how does that shape the the future of the world and when you mix all of these together we talk about social change right what does it mean for digital trust you know you saw GDPR come in a couple of years ago trying to standardize standardize regulation around digital technology and, and data in Europe at the same time I think 28 countries or 27 countries at the same time the US developed 28 different regulations in 28 different states around the United States and so we're getting, we're having this real conversation around who who benefits who pays you know what's a public good what's a private good and all of this is going to reshape the social contract in a way that we haven't seen certainly since since the end of World War II and and probably before that. Okay. So those are the those are kind of the ten the ten major topics. And most of the books actually about what do you do about them? How do you how do you respond to this? How do you turn these from threats into opportunities? That's great. Everybody, go to jonathanbrill.com, get your copy of Rogue Waves. And Jonathan, thanks for the conversation. <laughs> this is amazing. Thank you. Okay. Bye, everyone.